0: And if you want to join in on the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode or any other, please join the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there.
1: Hi, this is Dayton Ward, author of a whole bunch of Star Trek novels, and you're listening to Warp 5 on Trek FM.
0: To another episode of Warp Five, I'm your host Brandon Shamutella. and joining me today are the wonderfully large-brained individuals, Braindy Jacola. How are you doing, Braindy? Brains.
2: I want brains. And Patrick.
0: Patrick, how are you doing? I can't. I can't make brains. Patch. Brains. To Pat,
3: just go with the to Pat thing.
0: To Pat. Okay, to Pat. Yeah, it's pat. So
3: going to have a drug addiction by the end of the episode. That's what's going on today. This is trillium a really Not a drug
0: addiction.
2: Yeah, a trillium
3: yeah, it's tr- addiction. it's the same thing. Right. I'm going to be scratching and itching and trying to shoot up. <laughs> it's, it's really bad.
2: <laughs>
0: Excellent. Well, we've got a very interesting episode for you today. We've already recorded it. It's a lot of fun. We have a wonderful guest today. His name is Keith Ariaditcandido. You may have heard of him. He's a wonderful writer. He's got many books and short stories out there. He's written many Star Trek comics as well. And today, we're going to be talking to him about zombies and pulp culture, and a little bit about the episode Impulse from Season 3 of Star Trek Enterprise. And the reason why we invited Keith on is because he's recently written a short story, in an anthology collection called Knights of the Living Dead, which are all new original stories based on the Night of the Living Dead, edited by Jonathan Mayberry and George A. Romero. And, you know, he's Star Trek and he's a zombie guy. So why not have him on to talk about zombies in Star Trek? Makes sense to me. So, but before we get into that, we've got a couple of iTunes reviews and some comments, some feedback from the last episode that was released. So Brandy, can you believe this? We've got two more iTunes reviews. We
2: do! And they're both five-star reviews. Thank you very much. The first one is from Dennis Tremethick. I apologize if I said your name wrong, Dennis. And he gives us five stars. Uh, the review title is Miss Ya. I will miss you, Brandon, but the show is in good hands with Brandy and Patrick. I'm enjoying the new show format. Um, well,
0: i got to say, Dennis... <laughs> Thank you so much for this. And just because of this review, I'm not going anywhere.
2: Yep. (laughs) He's staying. He's staying now. Look what you've done. Look. You You saved the show.
0: You saved the show. I think there might have been a miscommunication, Dennis. It's the edge that I left, not Warp 5. But I do appreciate it nonetheless. Um, Unless you intended to put that over on uh, the edge, but you did reference Brandy and Patrick. So, uh, yes, no, I'm not going anywhere.
2: And we're all the better for it.
0: (laughs) Sorry, what was that, Patrick?
2: I'm over there
3: too. You are over there,
0: yeah. Here's we, we... the
2: confusion. Yes.
0: yes.
3: <laughs> Brandy, Amy.
2: Eh. Well, I, I have I been known so. to be uh, called Dark Amy, so, you know.
3: Yes,
0: yes, you were, yes.
2: <laughs>
0: oh, I thought it was Crab Apple.
2: Oh. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to come and get you. Anyway. That's my
0: Simpsons reference. That's my Simpsons <laughs> yes, reference. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Okay. The second review is from ChristopherMichaelComedian.com, which also gives us five stars. He also gives us five stars. And the review title is, Wow! I listen to all the Trek FM podcasts, yet this is my first review ever. For any of them with more to follow brandy patrick and bishay give fresh outlooks and deliver quality content during each cast they completely take the time to thoroughly engage the listener through friendly banter individual fandom and a plethora of celebrity guests thank you and keep up the great work
0: excellent right on thanks so much christopher we really appreciate that so uh yeah definitely if you guys want to give us a rating and review please let us know also um Tag us on Facebook in the Babel Conference or something. If you do happen to leave us a rating or review outside of the U.S., let us know because we do have, a little, have to do a little bit of legwork to look up from another country. So if you've let us know through another country that you've given us a rating or review, uh, just tag us so we can take the time to look it up. We haven't ignored you. We just haven't seen it yet. So, uh, so let us know because we know how to look them up from other countries. But it just takes a little bit of time. So excellent right on. Thank you so much. That's great. We've gotten what is that? Like six five star reviews recently. Yeah.
3: Wowzers. Yeah, something like that. A bunch.
0: Awesome. And before we jump into the episode, we're going to do some feedback from our episode 146 on Kung Fu. And uh, we had a comment, and I was wondering how long it was going to take to get there. They're like, so is Warp 5 the only Star Trek podcast that doesn't talk about Star Trek? And I, I thought we might have got a little early. But yeah, we we're kind of doing a little bit of tangents here, and I'm, I'm kind of pushing the boundaries. But we do have several more movie nights planned, and uh, the reason we are talking about Kung Fu is because it is something that they watched as a movie night. And even in the episode that we watched for tonight... Impulse, they were watching a movie. So uh, I'm sure we'll get to that one at some point in the future. Uh, But as far as the feedback in the Babel Conference goes, uh, Jerry Stewart says, I remember, in addition to Trek merchandise, Majel Barrett's Lincoln Enterprises also sold Kung Fu scripts. I didn't know that. That's pretty Hmm. cool.
1: That is
3: very interesting. Emily Barth says... Just want to say that there certainly are sand dune deserts in the U.S. Southwest. The most famous example is White Sands National Monument in New Mexico. For another visual, I believe the Stargate movie was filmed in Arizona, and it's a Sahara lookalike. This is significantly south of the Transcontinental Railroad that met at Pike's Peak, but it could have been the, the Southern Pacific. I'm not an expert, just looking to set the record straight, and thank you for the podcast. You've got me heading into the into a kung fu marathon now.
0: Awesome, well, right on. Awesome. That's great to know about the deserts in the southern states. I actually just recently watched the first Stargate movie with my daughter not that long ago, and I'm surprised that they would have filmed that in Arizona, because, yeah, that definitely looked like it would have been a an African desert or something like that. I was totally convinced, so that's really neat. And then uh, we've got some wonderful feedback from a friend of the show, Nicholas Anastasio, who was on when we were talking about Vulcan's Discovery. And uh, so he has this to say, Kung Fu was seminal watching and bonding for my dad and I as a kid. Great show with tons of valuable life lessons. There are quite a few sand dune deserts out west, yes, though none as large as those on other continents, including in Southern California, where I imagine they filmed. They probably wouldn't have had the budget to travel. Through the 30s, 40s, and 50s, Hollywood filmed many a movie that takes place in quote-unquote ancient Egypt there, and in fact, I believe some of Cecil B. DeMille's sets were just left and are still there. Fun trivia fact about Kung Fu, it was developed by Bruce Lee. It was based on some of his own learnings and experiences. A child of two cultures, the move west to America, racism in a dominant white culture, and the alienation from some of his own for sharing teachings that were believed to be secret. Lee wanted to use the show as a platform to disseminate his philosophy and spirituality, as well as to help him become a legitimate star in the U.S., He was promised by the network it would be his vehicle, did development on it for them, after which they promptly recast him with a more quote-unquote appropriate actor, that is, a white male that the network thought they could pass for Asian. I absolutely love Carradine, but it's still their huge loss for missing out on the greatest master of them all, the little dragon himself. Excellent. Thanks so much, Nick, for, uh, for sending those comments in. That's wonderful. Nick is a plethora of information and he's such a positive fan. He's always got something wonderful to say, you know, when with any aspect of Trek fandom. And I love chatting with him. I love messaging with him on Facebook and I love talking to him on my podcast as well. So it was great to have him on uh, to talk with Vulcans and Discovery. And uh, speaking of Vulcans... And joining us today for this wonderful discussion is renowned Trek author and author of many, many, many other stories, including the Dragon Precinct series, is Keith R.A. DeCandido. Keith, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing okay. How are you guys doing?
0: We are doing great. We greatly appreciate you joining us today. We're gonna to talk in a little bit of zombies today. And uh Before we jump in, we've got a little bit of a history kind of on zombies themselves. Uh, I'm going to read about them. But the first question I'm going to ask is, what are your guys' experience with zombies and zombie movies? Are you guys fans? Do you like them? Are they silly? What do you think? So uh, we'll start with Keith here. So what is your past experience? Are you a fan of zombies? Are you a fan of zombie movies? What do you think of them?
1: Um I I my experience with zombies is both professional and personal. The personal part of it, I mean, I like some zombie movies. Uh it's not necessarily my favorite subgenre of horror. Uh professionally I've I've written a bunch of zombie fiction, most notably the novelizations of the first 3 Resident Evil films. And uh I also did a short story for the Nights of the Living Dead anthology that uh, came out last year. It was uh, co-edited by George Romero. The um uh co-writer and director of night of the living dead and the stories all took place in and around the events of the movie and and night of the living dead is pretty much the seminal modern zombie movie so that was a fun experience I,
0: I gotta ask did you get a chance to meet george romero while sadly you on i this, did on not
1: um we exchanged emails uh in the process of putting the anthology together mostly i dealt with his co-editor Jonathan mayberry but um mm-hmm. uh i i unfortunately did not get to meet him and, and he passed away like Two weeks after the book came out, it was it was really important, hmm. but uh, but it was a great project to work on, and it's, and and one of the more of the high points of my career getting to work because while zombie gen- fiction may not necessarily be my favorite subgenre, Night of the Living Dead was an amazingly good movie uh, and a very very influ- one of the most influential horror movies of the 20th century. Um, so,
0: yeah, absolutely. Criterion just released a wonderful edition. I picked it up on Blu-ray. It looks just stunning. So, Patrick, why don't you tell us what your history is with zombies? What do you think of zombies? All right. So, uh,
3: no, I, I enjoy zombies, but this is going to sound like I'm just kissing butt here. But my favorite stories is, of zombies is the Resident Evil books and the video games. Um, <laughs> I actually didn't realize that was the same author because uh, I never paid attention. Apparently. Well, I
1: didn't, I, but, didn't write, I didn't write the novels. I just novelized the films. SD Perry wrote the original novels that were based on the game.
3: Yeah, I've read them all the movies, the books, uh, the movies. The, books based on the movies, the comic books, anything Resident Evil I own, and it's somewhere in this house near me right now. (laughs) So, uh, and that was pretty much, let me see, I'm trying to think, Resident Evil, the first video game, was probably the first thing of zombies I really got into, Uh, outside maybe like an R.L. Stein book before that. But I I don't go searching out zombie movies or anything, but if they're on, I won't, I'm not opposed to watching them.
0: Mm -hmm. Brandy, what do you think?
2: Well, I don't remember a time before Zombies because I watched Night of the Living Dead when I was very, very young. Because it happened before the rating system went into effect for the uh, the MPAA rating system for movies, uh, my parents had no idea. They're just like, oh, yeah, uh, just don't get scared. And so there's like a five-year-old me, I guess, I don't know how old I was watching this movie. And I'm not sure I fully grasped all the symbology, but I certainly understood what zombies were after that. And I was just not exposed to enough horror when I was a kid and when I was a young adult, but when I became an adult, I'm like, I'm going to see what this whole Resident Evil business is about. And I actually started with the second game rather than the first, but I did go back and play the first and, you know, I own all of them, etc. cetera. And, mm-hmm. uh, I do enjoy a good, a good zombie movie and uh, a good zombie story. So it's, it's something that's uh, been a part of my life pretty much as long as I can remember. So I do enjoy a good zombie.
0: Yeah, I don't remember when I first got into zombie movies. I'm pretty sure it was the 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 original Romero version of the the one in the mall. I think that's Day of, Day the, of the, Living the Dead. No,
2: yeah, that's Day of the Dead, not Dawn. Day of Day the Dead. Day of the Dead.
0: Yeah, I think I'm pretty sure that's the first one that I saw. And I know that the like of the original trilogy, the last one I saw was was the no no, it was Dawn that I saw first. Day was the last one that I saw. Night of the Living Dead was the second one I saw. That's right. Um and you know, I've always enjoyed zombies and zombie movies, and I remember when when Walking Dead was announced back in you know late two thousand nine or two early two thousand ten, whenever it was that it was announced. And I was very excited for this type of a show, and I've really enjoyed it. And well, I think the show itself has kind of gone downhill, and it's not as good as it was in its peak around say season four or five. It's still a very enjoyable show, and what I like about the zombie genre is the post apocalyptic period of time and seeing people you know, struggling, no technology and things like that. That's what I really like about it. You know, books like The Stand have always intrigued me. You know, those types of stories where society has just fallen apart. And so that's what draws me towards zombies is because that's generally the type of environment that people are in when these types of stories occur. Um, one of my favorite zombie movies is actually not quite a zombie movie. It's a Canadian film called Ponty Pool. And we'll talk a little bit more about it later, uh, but it does a little bit in, of an interesting thing with the zombie genre by turning it into, it, rather than being transmitted by biting, it's transmitted by speech. And when you hear the zombies, you turn into this zombie, and it's it's pretty cool. I like it a lot. Interesting. So, nice. Um, now when we, we posted on Twitter the other day that we were going to be having this discussion we got, we got a couple of, uh, we got a couple of responses. The first one I'm going to talk about, it came from anger, our soul crest at dream Inc founder on Twitter. And the question was, will it be discussed where zombie lore originates? I find the hoodoo culture fascinating. And so we're going to go a little bit into the talking about zombies and where they came from and what, and what's where they started and whatnot so uh this information i did pick up from wikipedia but uh, a zombie is a fictional undead being created through the reanimation of a human corpse zombies are most commonly found in horror and fantasy genre works the term comes from haitian folklore where a zombie is a dead body reanimated through various methods most commonly by magic Modern depictions of the reanimation of the dead do not necessarily involve magic, but often invoke science fictional methods such as carriers, radiation, mental diseases, vectors, pathogens, etc. Now, the English word zombie was first recorded in 1819 in a history of Brazil by the poet Robert Southey in the form of the word zombie not ending in an E, just an I. And the Oxford English Dictionary gives the origin of the word as West African and compares it to the Congo word nzombie, which means god, and zumbie, which means fetish. One of the first books to expose Western culture to the concept of the voodoo zombie was The Magic Island by W.B. Seabrook in 1929. And this is the sensationalized account of a narrator who encounters voodoo cults in Haiti and their resurrected thralls. Time claimed that the book introduced zombie to the U.S. beach. And then a little bit about Haitian tradition. So zombies are featured widely in Haitian rural folklore as dead persons physically revived by the act of necromancy of a bokor, a sorcerer, a sorcerer or a witch. And the bokor is opposed by the Haungan or priest and the mambo or priestess of the formal voodoo religion. A zombie remains under the control of the bokor as a personal slave having no will of its own. Um, so that's a little bit of history of what zombies were. And we're going to jump and talk a little bit about the first acknowledged instance of zombies in American film, which is a, a film called 19, uh, from 1932 called White Zombie, uh, which is a, a pre-cold horror film that was produced and directed by Victor Halperin. And this, this film stars Bela Lugosi. And in a nutshell, he's got zombies, but these zombies... Are very different than what we know of and what zombies have come to mean, and zombies have really changed over time. And how they're represented on television, uh, by basically eating dead, eating li- living bodies and whatnot, has been a changing development for these for these beings. And in White Zombie, they're basically just dead corpses that are walking around doing slave work for Bela Lugosi's character. So we've all we've all watched this movie for uh, for part of our homework assignment uh keith have you seen white zombie
3: i
1: a long time ago i saw it mm-hmm. um it, it, it i it should uh, i do want to mention also that uh, just something that this this came up when i was working on nights of the living dead george romero hated the word zombie and didn't think of his creatures as zombies but um yes and and it's one of the reasons why there's only some overlap between what we saw in Night of the living dead and everything you just described from from West African and, and Caribbean folklore. And uh, because of that, the, the, the two, basically, you kind of got, you know, undead peanut butter and zombie chocolate, and you wound up with what everybody now thinks of as zombies, um, which is just the way pop culture tends to evolve. Um, you know, it, 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 all it takes is one thing that people latch onto, and it becomes part of it, Much much the same way that almost everybody who writes vampires now has them part of vampire folklore until Nosferatu came out uh that that wasn't in Bram Stoker's novel which is where most people are getting their vampire cues from but uh the 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 evolution of how the zombie has changed is is fascinating yeah the the white zombie is much closer um to you know the what everybody thought of as zombies prior to 1968.
0: <laughs> uh, so Patrick and Brandy, what did you guys think of White Zombie when we watched it? Brandy, we'll start with you.
2: Well, I have seen it before, but it had been a really long time. So I enjoyed watching it again. And I had forgotten how atmospheric it was. I really actually enjoyed that. And yet I also could not stop staring at the eyebrows of bella lugosi it's like (laughs) oh my word just trim just comb up and trim a bit i mean i know they were fake i know those weren't his real (laughs) eyebrows but i was just like really you made that choice but uh but it's it was more of the you know original meaning of the zombie putting someone dead under your control and them having no will of their own and uh i I also for some reason forgot it was a talkie i just i, I was just like, oh yeah, oh yeah, they actually talk at this, but I really <laughs> enjoyed the movie i i I love that the this quote unquote bad guy who's not Bella Lugosi, who wants to marry uh who wants Madeline for himself he pays for his his crimes and yeah, yeah he 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 has his penance in the end, so I appreciated that. Uh, it was just, it was, it was, it was, I think it was ahead of its time for being 1932, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy it.
0: Yeah, it was a really good movie. I like that you point out that it was moody. That scene, when we go into Bella Lugosi's whatever it is, and they're, they're spinning that thing. Yeah, it's like I, a I, like to me...
2: mill, a grist mill or something
0: yeah the the sound that's going on in that is just so yes. spooky you know it's really really well done there's some really great imagery in this, you know like you know Belagosi's eyes keep showing up as if this uh you know this he's got this psychic link or something like that. they keep zooming in on his eyes yeah. and uh even the film itself opens up the you know they're being the the main characters are being drawn by horse and carriage, and they stop <laughs> because they're burying a body in the middle of the road because there 's so much grave robbing they they figure that no grave robbing will happen in a road because it 's so busy with traffic that you know people would prevent them from stealing the bodies in the middle of the road so they 're burying people in the middle of a road, which is kind of kind of interesting uh patrick what are your what are your thoughts on the film
3: So I had never seen it before, so i didn 't know what to expect going in, and I found it uh you actually stole some of my thumb, thunder. That that scene where they're doing the, the 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 mill, that is one of the spookiest scenes of television or movies I've ever seen. Yeah. It's it's really the way the music and everything else or the sound and everything else goes with it, it's really, really creepy. Uh I did enjoy it. I just found it very odd that just how different of zombies were used before. You know, like right. I I'd never seen anything zombie related from that far back. So I didn't know anything but the, the what we typically think of zombies now, where they kind of just drag their feet around and eat humans' brains, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, that was my experience with All Zombies before. So to see this, it was really, really different. And I really enjoyed it. It was just very different from what I would consider, you know, a zombie before you showed me this movie.
0: mm mm-hmm. Now... I never got a chance to look into it, but I do want to mention it here. I wonder if there's any type of uh, overlap between... There's another movie from around this time that was produced... I think it was produced by RKO. Um, It was only like a short 30-minute film, but it was the most dangerous game... And, you know, a lot of it looked very similar, a similar feel to it. I don't know if it was the same director. I haven't had a chance to research it. Um, but I really love these 1930s early horror films. You know, they're really well done and, and really moody. And, you know, it's it's interesting because the movie, it's so short. It's only 68 minutes long or something like that, right? And, I mean, and it ends so abruptly. Like, the, you know, uh, spoilers, Bella Lugosi dies in the end, and the movie's, like, done, right? So... <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's really, really kind of fascinating. But but if you guys want to check it out, it's really neat. And this is really where the zombie culture uh, in films started. But um, one of the really fascinating things about it is I looked up on Wikipedia as well, and there's well over 450 films, just movies referenced that have been created since 1932. You know, so like this is obviously a very popular genre of films. And we're going to go back to talking a little bit about Romero here now, the Romero verse, as we're kind of calling things nowadays. And Keith, do you happen to know why George Romero didn't like the association of the zombie word to his creatures?
1: He just didn't think they were zombies. He was just the you know, he he uh, he just he thought of them simply as undead creatures. Um, you know, the the dead rising. He zombies to him were you know creatures of voodoo magic, and there was no voodoo going on in his book. It was it. In his uh, movie, rather, it wasn't that he had any particular objection to zombies as such. It was just that's not what he was doing. <laughs> yeah. It was it was it was simply a case of mislabeling, um, but it, it's a mislabeling that kind of stuck, and that's pretty much what people think of zombies now. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't anything particularly against it. He just, he wasn't doing necessarily a supernatural story, um, although it could have been one. Of the, one of the things I, I like about Night of the Living Dead is that it doesn't really focus too much on why the dead are coming to life, because that's not really what the story is about. The story is about how the living people deal with it, which is, you know, most uh, true, most zombie stories, what makes them interesting is not so much the zombies themselves as the people um, for the most part. So,
0: Excellent, right on. Now, w- while we're talking about the Romeroverse, Keith, I'd like to talk to you about your short story that you've written. So, there was an anthology book that came out, I believe it was last year, is that correct?
1: Yeah, last uh, last summer.
0: Last summer. So it's called Nights of the Living Dead, edited by Jonathan Mayberry and George A. Romero. And there's several stories in here that are based on the Night of the Living Dead movie and series of movies that were created by George Romero. Well they all are. And they yeah. kinda take yeah, and they, they kinda take place at different times. Like some of them seem to be modern stories that take place now and so-
1: it, it's interesting. That the way Romero viewed the movie as it takes place the day after tomorrow that was that was his attitude on it because um, when he made the sequels they all took place you know at the time they were released even though it was supposed to be right after night of the living dead um he he viewed the story as more or less timeless and we were instructed to not feel the need to constrain ourselves to the 1968 time frame um from my own perspective, this was kind of annoying because I like, I really wanted to set my story. In <laughs> you know, it's like I emailed John. and it's like, but, 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 but my whole story only really works if it's still the late 60s. And he's like, no, it's fine. Um, Cause that was what was interesting to me. Part of what is fascinating about Night of the Living Dead to me is, uh, you know, the dynamics of, you know, race relations and, and, and sex relations and gender relations and, you know, class relations in in that particular time period. Um, plus, you know, the, there's certain elements of the movie that pretty much, I mean, they remade the movie in 1990 and it still worked, but once you get into the late 90s and the 21st century, the, the the whole movie kind of falls apart once you have cell phones and the internet. But yeah, so that was that was what was behind that. It was Romero's feeling that the story, and he's not wrong, is that the story is more or less timeless, and it freed up, the authors to pretty much, you know, pick and choose when they wanted it to take place. We could do period pieces if we want to, but we didn't have to. And then that, that, if nothing else, led to a greater variety of stories, which I think served the anthology better.
0: When you're given an assignment like this, like how do you approach it? Is do they do they put a bug in your ear and say, I want you to tell this type of story, or do they just say, We want you to write a story in this universe? Because
1: in this case it was just the latter. It was just we want we want you know, they Jonathan and, and George Romero went to a whole bunch of people had written zombie fiction and said, you know what, we want, to write, we want you to write a story that ties into Night of the Living Dead. That, you know, basically stories that take place, you know, simultaneous with the movie. What else was going on in the world while this movie was going on? And some of them went a little further afield than that. Um, some didn't. But, I mean, all of them were just looking at, you know, other things that were happening. How did, you know, we know how the zombie outbreak or the undead outbreak Affected this one group of people in Western Pennsylvania. How did it affect other people elsewhere? So that was, you know, expanding out that storyline to how various different pieces of humanity would deal with it. Um, in, in my particular case, uh, it, what, what struck me was, okay, you know, what, what, what was this like for the people reporting on it? Because we saw them watching, you know, news stories in the movie. So that's what I latched on to.
0: So now your story here, so it's about a news reporter and he's a, it's interesting because it's not just about the zombies, it's about this person as well yeah. and his relationship that he's got with his family because he's, he's a Jewish man, but he doesn't want to be associated as being a Jewish. So he's changed his last name a little bit and to help get him out there more and not have racism against him or prejudice against him. Yeah
1: because that was a thing in 1968, <laughs> Still is to some degree, unfortunately, but uh, more aggressively so then. Yeah, you, you, it, it was extremely commonplace, uh, especially for people whose names were going to be out in the public as a TV reporter would be uh, for, for a, uh, people of, of almost any ethnicity that had a multi name or something that gave any hint of Judaism to, to not make it obvious that they were Jewish. Um, because it made their lives easier to do that. Um, and that, yeah, you know, like I said, the zombies or undead or whatever we call them, they themselves aren't necessarily that interesting, but what's interesting is how the dead coming back to life would affect the, the people who are still living. And in particular, I wanted to, to play around with something, because one, one of the things in the movie they said was, you must cremate dead bodies right away. The Jewish religion forbids cremation. Where do you draw that line? <laughs> you know? um, how 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 does you know where what, what How would how would a devout Jew react to being told you must burn this body, especially if the body is somebody you love? And so that that's what I wanted to you know take a look at. I wanted to do. I like writing period pieces. I like you know looking into the past and, and immersing myself in that era and, and what looking at how things have changed and how how things have stayed the same.
0: Uh Brandy and Patrick, did you guys have questions on the story?
3: I didn't necessarily have questions. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I didn't, like what he, Keith's saying is bringing up the cremation part when when he first goes to argue with the I guess head editor or the well, the guy at the, the the news station. The boss of the news station. And he says, Yeah, well, what, yeah. yeah so he says, "Well, what about what about the Jewish and that, that bringing that point up the way you did, I found uh fascinating because he was going to fight and then thought better of it because of the time period in which he's in. Yeah. And then, you know, fast forward to the end and now he has to burn his mother and father and he's he's just saying to himself, uh the lord the lord would understand, you know, the or to those to that effect. Um kind of trying to convince himself that what he's doing is right even though his faith says it's wrong and yeah. him having to come to grips with it really quickly. Um and then the very last scene I found it amazing because it's the other woman from the story who I think is also Jewish, right? Uh, no, uh, she, no. Slavic of some kind? Yeah. Because she, she has a longer name, too, yeah. that she cut down. Yeah. And uh, she's the one now reporting yeah. on him after she felt wronged by him with a something a little earlier in the story that isn't nearly as important as the rest of the things we talked about. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. I don't really have any questions either. I really like how you nailed that time period. <laughs> and I, I just, I, I enjoy even just the opening scene of him waiting for a payphone to be free and checking his teeth. You know, and getting upset because his cameraman didn't tell him something there was in his was there in his teeth, and just all these little things that are giving us this character right off the bat, and yeah. and so we think. We know exactly what he's all about, but then we realize, oh, wait, a zombie apocalypse is happening. All bets are off, so we'll see what happens. And we get to know even more about him. I mean, you had a very short amount of time to create a concrete character, and you did a great job of it. I really enjoyed it.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah,
3: Just to add to that, even going so far as to point out that he started in the black and white days... And is currently in the color days, so it, yeah. it really paints a good picture of his career and who he is. Yeah. It's truly fantastic.
1: And color was still a new thing in 68, so,
3: yeah. Well, I strongly
0: recommend picking up this book. There's a lot of really great short stories in it from there, a lot of different There are some amazing writers.
1: stories in there. It was, it was a real privilege to be in the same book with, with, with those stories. There were some really great ones um mm-hmm. yeah. that blew me away Mira grant wrote a really good story uh called I think it was called That." the zoo um joe lansdale uh brian Keane, just you know so many so many big big names in horror um who really you know took this and ran with it beautifully
0: even even romero himself wrote a story that's in here
1: yeah as, and so did his co-writer whose name i'm blanking on john russo uh Russo co-wrote the script with Romero and he also did a story as well.
0: Now, when we posted this on Twitter, before we get into the Star Trek aspect of this, because I'm sure listeners are like, what is this? Is this not the Star Trek podcast? <laughs> um, we... um we posted on Twitter as well, and I tagged Jonathan Mayberry, who was the editor of this short story collection, and he also wrote a story in this. And he he asked us, what is your favorite metaphor in zombie films or fiction? And I'm going to start, I want to bring up Pontypool again. So I really recommend this because, you know, Stephen McCaddy is in it, and he for Star Trek people, he played Vreenak in uh, the uh, in the Pale Moonlight episode of D Space Nine, the It's a Fake, and uh, he played the the man who was in charge of the the mine where they went to in the episode The Zindi who had that breathing mask and he had cut off The Zindi's finger to give to Archer and whatnot. He's that guy. Anyways, he's an amazing actor and he plays a radio DJ and it, th- this was originally written as a radio play And so this radio DJ is interacting with people, you know, outside. They're calling into the radio station and whatnot. And this this zombie plague is basically transmitted by sound and by speech. And, you know, so for me, this is almost my favorite zombie metaphor in that it, you know, you can listening to other people can turn you into a mindless zombie because of you know people's opinions and like you know not checking your facts and whatnot like so for me, Pontypool is one of my favorite zombie type films that has some type of a metaphor in it for you know social media and interaction with people in this day and age so i want I'll turn Jonathan Mayberry's question back to you guys here. Keith We'll start with you. What's your favorite metaphor in zombie films or fiction?
1: Oh, God, I was hoping you wouldn't start with me um I don't know i i like I said the the I mean it's, it's I can go back it's just in general the way the way it's been used um, as as a cautionary tale uh, in much the same way as as you know Frankenstein was in, in its own way of, of messing about with things we're not supposed to with that, that we're not ready to mess about with yet um, but I, you know, ask someone else.
0: <laughs> Patrick, what do you think? What's your favorite uh, metaphor in zombie films or fiction? So I,
1: I think, well,
3: mine would, would probably be similar in that it, it is a cautionary tale of if we push too hard too quickly and don't go through the right channels, you could end up with some major mess up. You know, And that that's kind of the way Resident Evil was. Uh, I keep going back to that because that is still my favorite of all zombies. But even <laughs> if you go back to the very first video game, the whole point of that was there was a research facility they were trying to develop some kind of drug to save human human beings, and they ended up blowing it completely and creating all these zombies, zombie dogs, tyrants, and all these other things, which was then weaponized by someone else, was bought out by someone else to weaponize. And then that, be- that became their focus, because their whole mission changed when they realized, ooh, we could take over the world with this. Um, and then the first team runs in, they all die because they don't pay attention, they just kind of blindly follow in right, and they all become zombies or dead the second team does the same and the only survivor is you in the video game by the end because you're the only one who actually sat and thought your steps out and I think that's the best part of zombie movies is that if you don't take a step back and actually think and, tr- and try and rationalize what's going on in a completely irrational world at this point you're doomed to just become one of them, a mindless zombie who's going to eat brains or whatever you do <laughs> Brandy?
2: Well, I have a couple of ways I can go with this, but I'm going to go with consumerism because I worked at a toy store for three Christmases in a row. I'm and so there is nothing <laughs> like, thank you, I survived <laughs> and I'm a better person for it, and there is there is nothing like seeing a flood of people at 5 a.m. the day after Thanksgiving having been told what their kids need for Christmas and just descending like a bunch of zombies fighting over a piece of meat it was it's unreal if you've never actually been at a store at that point, either on the other side of the counter or in a crowd, you can't know <laughs> what it's like until you've experienced it. And, uh, and so and for that reason, um, some of my favorite uh, zombie things are, well, I love uh, Day of the Dead because it takes place mostly in a mall. And then, of <laughs> course, there are the, um, the Dead Rising video games, which uh, the very first one takes place completely in a mall just one entire mall and uh, in Dead Rising 4 you go back to that same character and you end up in a situation again where you get to go through the whole town but there's a lot going on at the mall again (laughs) I'm just like yeah yeah consumerism just uh, let people keep telling you what it is you need and then going and buying it don't think for yourself just go with what the public thinks (laughs) so that's one of my favorites (laughs)
3: I think mostly what I like. And we'll be about... right
0: back after this commercial.
3: Break. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Do you go to bed at night and are tired? Do you wake up feeling tired or restful? No, I'm sorry.
2: I'm sorry, you're saying something, Keith. I apologize. We can interrupt. Oh, oh, we're not actually going to commercial. Okay, just, I got confused there for a minute. Um,
1: <laughs> the the thing, just in general, and it's not. It, it's something that you generally see in most uh, fiction of this type is that it brings out either the best or the worst in humanity this sort of thing is is a crucible that boils away people's a, a lot of people's personalities down to its essence where you wind up with you know either everybody involved is either you know a hero or a villain and and there's not much room for shades of gray a lot of times because you're trying to survive um i i'm thinking in particular of you know, like in Resident Evil, the pretty much anybody who works for the uh, the Umbrella Corporation, um, and uh, in or on or Christopher Eccleston's character in Twenty Eight Days Later, or um, you know, uh, and the flip side of it would be you know characters like um, the 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 lead in Night of the Living Night of the Living Dead, or jumping back to Resident Evil again, uh, the character of Alice in those movies, who is you know basically a, a corporate security person. <laughs> who got sucked into this mostly because, you know, she was gonna turn into the bad guys and got stuck in the middle of this nonsense. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, the, the way it, it it boils people down to their essence. You know, in other words, they, they, they become pretty much you know the the purest version of what they what they are simply because everything has been reduced to the imperative of trying to survive. You know, you even see that in The Walking Dead. I mean, one of the reasons why I stopped watching The Walking Dead, I didn't really last past the first season on Walking Dead, mostly because I thought the people were all idiots. And uh, <laughs> I, I was tired of watching idiots be idiots, you know, once a week. So I stopped. But,
2: agree. <laughs> I so agree.
1: I mean, it honestly lost me in the first episode. You know, I mean, I'm sorry. You're, you're, you're in, you, you go to a town I agree. and you discover they abandoned a tank. If they abandoned a tank, you shouldn't be there anymore. And instead he stuck around and got his poor innocent horse killed. Yeah, Yeah,
2: and and they and zombies get bored and wander off. Oh, they yeah. made a noise in the house and now all the zombies are pounding on the doors and then they get bored and walk away? I don't think so.
1: Yeah. Well, plus also the, the, the zombies are pounding on the window and they're standing there watching them. It's like, no, go away. They're going to break the glass moon.
2: <laughs> no, Keith, I anyway. love you so much. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
0: Excellent. Well, let's, uh, we're going to bring it to our last topic here, which is why we're talking about zombies on a Star Trek podcast. Yes, why are we talking three. about zombies on a
1: Star Trek podcast? <laughs> I was wondering that too.
0: The season three episode of Star Trek Enterprise, which is entitled Impulse. So in this episode, we come across this deserted Vulcan ship, this wreck of a Vulcan ship that's stuck in this asteroid field because they were, they were mining the Trellium. And they go on board and they discover that these Vulcans are basically turned into these mindless killing machines and they're attacking whoever is there. And in a nutshell, this is basically Star Trek's zombie episode. We haven't had anything like this. You know, it's one of, I think, one of the scariest episodes of Star Trek. You know, it's very moody, very dark. And we haven't seen anything like this yet. And,. While I was watching it this time, I was comparing it to the white zombie. And, you know, these Vulcan zombies, they're not eating anybody. They're just attacking and whatnot. These are kind of closer to the white zombie zombies than anything else. So uh, let's let's talk a little bit about the episode and how the the Vulcans are portrayed in this episode. Keith, what do you think of this episode?
1: I mean, just in general, the idea of Vulcans as zombies is, is a cool one. In concept, just because Vulcans are already stronger than humans, um, and and have the—I mean, I don't know how much good the touch telepathy is going to do when you're dead—but the 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 superior strength is certainly useful when you're stomping around trying to kill other people. Um, so I can I can I can see the appeal.
0: How do you feel, Patrick, about the episode?
3: No, I, I enjoy the episode. I enjoy the way they portrayed them as as zombies, and I also enjoy that we get to watch. Uh, to pull like becoming one through the episode and her change. I mean, the first scene is just her screaming, which is a little weird and jarring. But then, then after the you know after the the intro, we we get the story of how that happened and how she got to that point. And uh, what's nice is this is the first time the Vulcans aren't the ones who are resistant to everything. In fact, <laughs> it's, it's the time that they're the only ones affected. You know, every other time we see the Vulcans, it's like, oh, everyone's turning into this. Oh, except for T'Pol, because she has K-cells and C-cells and B-cells and X-cells and Z-cells. And now, finally, once we get her drug addiction comes out of all this, yeah. right? This is yeah. the big drug addiction we have for the rest of the series. I was on the original but series, too.
1: Spock was always immune to everything, too, you know.
3: Right. It's yeah. always the Vulcans. They're yeah. always immune. So, finally, we have something that just affects them and hurts them. And uh, I find it really interesting. I also like yeah. the way they cut the scenes. And like you said, it's very... It's very moody. It's very uh, creepy at times when, uh, by the, just the way they filmed it. And and I, and I enjoy it.
1: I don't recall. Who, a great do, point, who directed Patrick? the episode?
0: Oh, I didn't even look that up. I'm not sure. Let me double check while we're talking here. Curious, uh, but, but that's a great point, Patrick, because I, I don't think I've looked at it that way before, where, yeah, this is the time when it's just the Vulcans that are affected. Yes. And that's really neat. So, excellent. Brandy, what did you think of the episode?
2: I absolutely adore this episode Uh, again (laughs) atmosphere so much atmosphere it's basically filmed in the same structure as a horror movie and so it, it except it gives you this start at the beginning and usually I hate the thing where they start at this one point and then they go back to the beginning that is so overdone these days, I mean, it was still a new thing back when they did it, but these days I'm just like, I do not all, want to it's see. It's all Aaron
1: Sorkin's fault, and I say that as a huge yeah. Aaron Sorkin fan. He was a he was a master <laughs> at that sort of thing, but he did it on the West Wing several times, and then everybody decided, hey, that's cool, we should do that too. Uh, and they're but, all, yeah. they're
2: still doing it today. Know, they're still doing it today, and it drives me crazy. I'm like, please just tell me the story. Don't do this 24 <laughs> hours earlier crap. I don't care. Mm-hmm. But uh, but. They really get you on board with like, what the H is happening to to Paul? And then they show us from the beginning how this all starts. And mm-hmm. and once they get on that Vulcan ship, oh, it's horror movie all the way after that. And mm-hmm. oh, just I I love how frightening it is. I love how scary those Vulcans are because what what I see in this case instead of the people being boiled down to their their base setting. It's the Vulcans that have been boiled down to basically what they used to be, which is just violent. They're just violent for violence sake. And they're trying to take out anyone else who is not them. It's Or so it seems. We don't really know their motivations of what they're even trying to do at that point. Do they even know anymore? Or are their brains just all too far gone? As, And then to have one of their own start to break down and have this problem almost as if you've got somebody who's been bitten by a zombie and now is a carrier and they're transforming and you don't want to give up on them. And, oh, it's just, it's intense. And I love it.
0: Uh, to answer your question, there, Keith, it was David Livingston that directed ah, this episode. Okay.
1: He was he was he was an excellent director. I I'm I'm just thinking back because Star Trek doesn't go into the horror well very often. I can only think of two other examples up the top of my head, um, like Catspaw, Catspaw <laughs> original series, which which was terrible, and and Genesis on Next Generation, which was even more terrible. Although Genesis at least looked, had had the atmospherics down um it's interesting it's the only episode of anything actually that gates mcfadden directed it was her only it was a directorial debut and her directorial swan song at the same time um and she did an amazing job it, it would have been great if she could have directed you know a good script but um but the i mean the only way in which genesis worked was in the atmospherics it was it was in how it felt um the the visuals were superb uh, I mean, it was lipstick on a pig in that particular case because Genesis is one of the most embarrassingly bad episodes of Next Generation. But at least it looked cool. Um Cat's paw didn't even look cool. But
2: <laughs> I blocked it out of my memory.
1: It was. It was.
2: It, it was. It was yet
1: another Robert Block story where where he had you know strange extragalactic aliens who talked about the old ones because he was always referring to to Lovecraftian but it's yeah, not not by name, ones, but yep. but both <laughs> both what are little girls made of and um, *Catspaw* made reference to the old ones. Cthulhu, were, it's yeah, Cthulhu. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and you know uh, *Catspaw* was basically Star Trek's attempt at a Halloween episode, at which it failed rather spectacularly. But
0: I, I've been watching Star Trek with my daughter, and we watched *Catspaw* about a year and a half ago. She was she was five years old when we watched it, and man, for a five year old, she was hiding under the couch. You know, like, so it, it works for kids. Oh, yeah, no, and, and there's some definitely
1: good, you know, spooky, scary moments. The, uh, and, and, and the cat, the shadow. Actually, it's funny. When they tried to make, use a regular cat in a miniature set to make it look like this big menacing cat, that was completely unconvincing. But when they just showed the cat's shadow
2: in the hallway, that was scary. They should have just done that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the cat's shadow. Sometimes
2: less is more. Sometimes what yeah. you think you yeah. see is scarier than what you actually see.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: Yeah. There's one more episode of Star Trek that I can think of that's kind of like horror related. Um, you know, we had uh, from Star Trek Discovery. Well, two more actually. So from Star Trek Discovery, we had uh, uh, it was I think it was episode three, uh, which I can't remember the title off the top of my head. When they go over to the other ship,
2: context is for kings, I believe. That context was the
0: third kings, episode. I'm not
1: right. sure if that's I and I reviewed the whole damn thing, but I don't remember which. But yes, yeah, so, but yes, yeah, the whole the whole sequence where they go to the Glen and and try to find out what happened to it was was very horror movie-ish and very effective. Yeah, and like then that. also,
0: also on Deep Space Nine they had Empok Noir, nor which was a pretty spooky one with the, the, vul- uh, the Cardassian, had Cardassian
1: zombies
0: in it. Yeah. Yeah, Cardassian zombies. <laughs> so, but not quite zombies because they were like, uh, warriors yeah. who were, who but that were was also tragic, a terrible frozen.
1: episode. I think the lesson in that this is not... that Star Trek, Star Trek and horror don't always mix.
0: <laughs> don't mix well. Um, yeah excellent i i like this episode a lot um i watched it again myself last night and it's it's really good i think i think it's really cool um marvin Rush used use a similar type of uh camera shutter technique that they use for a lot of sports films and stuff like that to create ah. this this juddery type of look that you get yeah. so but anywho um uh, I think we'd wrap it up with some final thoughts. And did you guys have any final thoughts on zombies or or impulse in general, uh, Keith? Let's start with you. Any final thoughts on the discussion we've had
1: tonight? I think one of one of the nifty things about zombies is not so much zombies themselves as what they reveal about humanity and how people deal with them. the The best zombie stories, to my mind, are the ones that are about what happens to the living while the dead are rising. And yeah, you know, zombies are basically force of nature villains. So that that's you know that, that that's those stories work best when you've got interesting people dealing with it. Um, that's one of the things that made Night of the Living Dead so effective, um, and so that's that to my mind, that's the interesting part. You know, or failing that, um, you know, something where uh, somebody you care about is the one who gets turned. You know, as as with the Enterprise episode where T'Pol is one of the victims, so that that gives you some stakes in, in it, and you know what happens when your friends die but even then it's, it's how the rest of the crew reacted to it so that's that's that to me is is the interesting part much more than which is why i think it almost doesn't matter whether it's Haitian voodoo or a disease or a science experiment gone wrong or a meteor that crashed out of the earth or whatever it doesn't matter and what matters is the results not the cause
0: mm-hmm. or even trillium. or mm-hmm. that yeah <laughs> <laughs> Brandy, do you have any final thoughts?
2: Well, I always enjoy a good zombie story, as I said before. And I agree that it's not really about the zombies. It's about the people who are affected by the zombies. That's what we're really paying attention to. and But still, I like that aspect of storytelling. Because zombies, whether they're the Haitian kind or whether they're the undead kind uh, that eat people, they are relentless. They don't need sleep they don't technically need to eat but they're doing it anyway and they just keep coming and you can run yeah but they'll you're going to have to stop and sleep at some point they're going to catch up to you so it's a very very frightening thing it's like kind of like a metaphor for death almost you know we can keep running all our lives but death's going to get us all in the end maybe by a zombie you don't know but i uh i i do enjoy that aspect of horror and I have enjoyed it all my life and fusion not fusion I don't know why I started to say fusion impulse and fusion (laughs) impulse was just a wonderful manifestation in the Star Trek universe of that particular genre for me
1: can I just throw something else in there too that occurred to me when Brandy was saying what she was saying is that um, one other way that that Star Trek has kind of done zombies is the Borg the Borg are in many ways you know kind of zombie like um and and what what made me think of it was um what brandy had just said about them being relentless reminded me of q's speech in q who that introduced the borg that whole you can't outrun them you can't destroy them even if you damage them the heart of what they are remains they are relentless that was how he, and that was one of john delante's best speeches and that's 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 zombies <laughs> you
2: know? true that yeah, you got it true that. and they kind of
1: look like zombies too
2: they do the pale skin yeah. dead stare no will of their own
1: talking a monotone.
2: yeah <laughs> that too <laughs> if they talk
1: yeah
0: Patrick did you have any final thoughts um
3: no I, I just like to say that you know I do enjoy a good zombie story like everyone else um unlike you I don't enjoy walking dead even at all a little not even a tiny bit uh, <laughs> I did enjoy the comic books a lot the the TV adaptation was terrible and uh I, I made it a little farther I got to season 2 but that was it uh, although uh, last final thoughts on impulse I do want to say I find it interesting that we do get um very lasting continuity from this episode mm-hmm. because you have the drug addiction but not only that when you get to season 4 you have the fight with Archer and the Vulcans for not saving them mm-hmm. uh when they blame Archer and say they, he could have done something but he killed them instead and uh so I find that to be very interesting that they would take this zombie story and drag it out that far and make it that widespread in, in the the major arc of the whole series and uh and I'm glad they did because it it, it makes it it makes it worthwhile and a worthwhile episode uh more so than just making a, a decent horror story cause, I mean I think it was I, I shouldn't say decent I think it was a good horror story but uh it really would have no place if it didn't do anything else, in my opinion, at that point in the storytelling you know, they were having. Um, but this one did. It, it It bounced back. This is episode three, right? Five. five. Five, five. Yeah, episode three is the one I hate. Yeah. So it did bounce back from that, and uh, we got back on track with our storytelling. So, so I'm really glad they did this story, and they did it the way they did it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Excellent. Right on. Well, my final thoughts on the discussion is everybody should go and see Pool because it's so good and Stephen McCaddy's amazing. Oh.
3: I so. did see that on your recommendation when we talked about it. Yeah, will you review. please
2: Phenomenal. explain the ending to me, Branton, because I don't <laughs> get it. I do not get it. I You've have seen not it, seen the uh-huh?
1: movie, but I'm a huge fan of Steve McCaddy, so I'm uh, very interested in seeing it. I've been a fan of his for, Oh, you forever. have to. Uh long before he was on Star Trek but uh and more actually most recently he was on uh he was on Orphan Black. He was in the last season of Orphan Black.
0: Oh nice, That's I fun. haven't got to that far yet. Yeah. So I think yeah, excellent. Keith, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it today. Please let everybody know where they can find you online, and uh, please tell us what you're working on right now that you can let the listeners know about.
1: Uh, You can find me online at decantito.net, which currently is just a link dump, but it'll get you to all the places where I'm more active online. Uh, There there are links to buying my books at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and IndieBound. Plus, there's links to my blog, my uh, Facebook page, my Twitter feed, my Instagram feed, my Wikipedia page, my articles for tour.com uh and so on so that's decandido.net and you can email me from there as well um i update my blog fairly regularly i post on facebook and twitter fairly regularly so uh um that's that's a fairly easy way to cyber stalk me as need be um my uh currently i am working on a project i'm not allowed to talk about um so i can't tell you what it is but it's cool um I've just had a Sherlock Holmes pastiche story that came out in an anthology called Baker Street Irregulars, The Game is Afoot, which was also co-edited by Jonathan Mayberry along with Michael Ventrella, which is alternate Sherlock Holmes stories. And I did a story featuring Shirley Holmes and Jack Watson in modern-day New York. (laughs) I need that. Um, Nice. And uh, I've got a story coming out from Crazy 8 Press this summer called They Keep Killing Glenn which is a whole bunch of people who got together and figured out ways to kill crazy eights webmaster glenn hellman um uh, peter david michael jan friedman robert greenberger david mack uh all familiar names if you've read star trek fiction are all uh contributing to that uh as well as some others um uh i'm working on the next precinct book mermaid precinct uh in fact i have a new publisher for the precinct books the uh these are uh Brandon mentioned them at the top of the show. Dragon Precinct is uh, the first in a series of police procedurals that take place in a fantasy setting. So it's kind of Law and Order meets Lord of the Rings, or Dungeons and Dragnet, as one reviewer called it.
2: I'm in.
1: (laughs) Uh, I just changed publishers because uh, Dark Quest Books was unable to continue doing them, so they've been reissued by eSpec Books. The first Dragon Precinct, Unicorn Precinct, and Goblin Precinct are out. We'll be releasing uh, Tales from Dragon Precinct and Griffin Precinct fairly soon. And then the next book uh, will be out later this year called Mermaid Precinct. And there'll be three more books beyond that. Phoenix Precinct, Manticore Precinct, and More Tales from Dragon Precinct, which be another collection of short stories. So um, you should definitely check those out. Uh, they're, they're available, like I said, from me spec books. Um, and I'm probably doing some other stuff too, but I can't remember due to a severe lack of sleep. Plus I've got two really – my two biggest projects I can't talk about yet. They're both uh, tie-in books. Uh, that, that will be coming out uh, later this year or early next year. But I'm not in a mm-hmm. position to talk about it. Now. Oh, and there's my urban fantasy. Um, I'm starting a new urban fantasy series. Uh, Patrick, you'll like this. It, it takes place in the Bronx. Um, it's about a, yes. nice, a nice Jewish boy who hunts monsters. A <laughs> uh, guy named Gold, awesome. who Gold, uh, who lives and works in the Bronx, and he hunts various and sundry monsters. And there's immortals being killed and and other strange things happening, and he has to figure out what's going on. So That's called A Furnace Sealed, nice. and that'll be out uh, later this year from Wordfire. And I think that's everything. <laughs> right on. Oh, and I should mention the great superhero movie rewatch, which I'm doing for Tor.com. Since I'm no longer rewatching Star Trek stuff for them, uh, having done Next Gen Deep Space Nine in the original series, I'm now rewatching every single live-action movie based on a superhero comic book, which is going to keep me busy for a while because there's a lot of them. There's 19
2: just in Marvel alone. Uh, excuse me, 20 that's only if you're only counting the mcu
1: then there's more beyond that there's the oh, movies, yes. the spider-man movies plus i started with superman versus the mole men and the 66 batman and i've been working my way forward nice. so i did yes. i did you know the 70s captain america tv movies i did the, oh, the Marriott, Lord. uh incredible hulk tv movies both the the first two pilots that were done for the tv show and then the follow-up movies done in the late 80s um I did the 70s Spider-Man, I did the 70s Doctor Strange, I did the Christopher Reeve Superman, I did the Tim Burton and and, um, uh, Joel Schumacher Batman films, I did Steel, I did Spawn, I did Barbed Wire, I did Mystery Men, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, all sorts of stuff. Um, I'm now into the 21st century, Uh, I just did the two Hellboy uh, Hellboy films. Nice. And with more to come. There's like 120 films at least, so yeah. (laughs) I keep you busy for a while. Yeah. Every Friday at Pro.com. Yeah.
0: Well, before we go, Keith, I have to fanboy out for a second and just tell you how much I love Diplomatic Implausibility. Oh, thank you.
1: That was my first book. I have of read
0: that book, I've read it four times. Wow. And. It, it is definitely one of my favorite Star Trek novels, and you know it's the only real one that we got about Worf as an ambassador. And yeah, it was this really neat thing, and it even spawned off a great series of books about the uh, the IKS Gorkon, uh, the, the Klingon ships. Yeah. And you know, I just I love that book so much. So thank you for that book.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for thank you for saying nice things. it's a seventeen year old book now, and it's nice to know that it still has fans. <laughs>
0: Yes, excellent. And those who haven't read it, you should read it. We're going to be covering it. Well, I won't be, but they will be covering it on Literary Treks coming up over the next few months here at some time. Oh, really?
1: I didn't know that.
0: Excellent. Well, talking about zombies is not the only thing we've been doing on the Star Trek Network this week, so take a listen to this clip and see what else you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM.
1: Previously on Trek.fm, The Orb. DS9's Second Visit to the Mirror Universe wasn't simply that, hey, that was fine, we did that in Season 2, why don't we do that again? Let's go to the Mirror Universe, let's just make it a thing. It was, let's go back and find out what were the consequences of that first crossover, and then let's build upon that.
0: And that, again, is one of the things that I think the DS9 writers do so well that we don't always see on other series.
1: Earl Grey. I want to start with something a little bit different. The first thing I want to start with is to go around... And ask everybody something that they love about Nemesis. So, Zach, you want to start? Sure. <laughs> I know it's a ch- it maybe a challenge. That was a pregnant but... <laughs> pause. <laughs> I, I, I know. hope he doesn't say the credits. Oh no no no! <laughs> Literary Treks.
3: To me, and and I kind of thought this more as we got further into the book it really felt like a narrative computer game almost where you find all these clues and you visit these rooms and then you have to visit the rooms again and all that and we'll get into the main plot of what they do later in the book but Yeah, this setup. I love the mystery. I'm really enjoying, like, what's going on? What's, what happened here?
1: The 602 Club.
0: You know, what's really interesting is I have
1: shown this to my kids. This is the one I held on to. This is like Revenge of the Sith, where I was like, you gotta get to a certain, I I gotta, you know, I I gotta know you're gonna be able to, you know, sort of like hang on to this and not, uh, you know go too far with it and and get freaked out and stuff and what's so fascinating and I think back to when I was a kid and I saw this that the heart scene you know the the famous mole rom taking the heart out scene that was fascinating and that's what else is happening on trek.fm so check
0: out all these shows and join in the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and Brains. You'll find us wherever you get your podcast. If you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link as well.
2: We would love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that thing. The best place, of course, is to join in the larger conversation on the Babel Conference, which is our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, you should know how to spell this by now, but it's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email or your brains, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Brains. That will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at Brains. At, no, I'm sorry. At Trek FM and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Trek FM. And just to be fair, I believe it was Return of the Living Dead, not an actual sequel to Night of the Living Dead. But that was the first time we see zombies wanting brains. And it gets explained why, even.
0: To Pat, where can people find you when you're not succumbing to Trelium D and turning into a Vulcan zombie? Ah! Oh, uh, warned
3: a person. Um, well, you when do I'm that. not doing that, <laughs> you can. Sorry, you can find me on the Babel Conference. Uh, I pop my head in and out of there. Uh, I don't know if I will be anymore. Now that I don't think straight and I have a drug addiction to Trelium, but hey, it happens. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Magic Drop Five. That's one word. The five is a number. And you can also find me on the Edge uh, with with Amy Nelson. So. Brandon, where can people find you when you're not shuffling your feet around trying to knock people over so you can eat their heads?
0: Oh, you can find me here in Saskatchewan where, uh, you know, I do that to gophers.
2: <coughs> oh,
1: man.
0: <laughs> you can also find me on Twitter at Brandon Matella. You can find me poking my head up every once in a while in the Babel Conference, but I don't do it too often because if I poke my head up, somebody might eat my brains.
3: brains. You can
0: find me on Twitter, at Brandon Mattella. You can find me here on the network uh, with new episodes of Warp 5. Well, that's you guys, I guess. You know, I guess I'm no longer on the edge, so I can't say that. Um, you can find me over on the Fandom Podcast Network with my friends Chris and Tom as we cover the Hitchcock films one at a time. Brandy. Where can people find you when you're not doing that crazy thing with your hands, like Bell Lugosi, and then playing with your really long eyebrows?
2: I I felt like he was trying to do, like, bicep muscles, you know? Like, pulling his hands apart, but
0: not... Have you seen my beach ball? I placed it over there. We must!
2: We must! We must increase the bust! Sorry. (laughs) When I'm not trying to increase my bust size, you can find this. Sorry. You can find me on Twitter at Brandywine12. Brandy is spelled with an I and 12 is a number. Uh, you can also find me on the Babel Conference from time to time. Uh, swimming like a shark under the water and sometimes if you see my fin you better run I'm just kidding and uh, (laughs) you will also hear me from time to time popping up on the 602 Club Uh, I am an extremely enthusiastic nerd about many things and also I do a podcast thank you Uh, also I do a podcast with my dear husband Dave called the Dark Corner Podcast which you can find at darkcornerpodcast.com we have our own subdomain now, and page, and everything, and uh, we talk about uh, pop culture from the darker side of life, and there is colorful metaphor-edge going on. Metaphor-edge? That, that's not a word. I don't care. Anyway.
3: People going out there and like chopping down metaphors. ha! <laughs> <laughs>
2: Or foraging for metaphors. I don't know. Yeah, right.
3: So they're, they're throwing them in a wagon and bringing them back to town. Oh, man. What's going
2: we on? need more metaphors. I've, we're running out. Get back out to that forest. So sorry. Well
3: wow. Rails off. Gone. Whew. So, if you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron on the network at Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash truckfm to get all the details. Perk include, perk include. <laughs> Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, especially with all the extra rails we lay out on this show. So you know, there's that. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm.
0: And you know what else it takes to uh, run this network? What? Brains. 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 And brains. you know who's got wonderfully delicious brains? Oh, tell us I want I brains. Bet we have a list of people that have them. Brains. I got a list of delicious brains here. There are people, these have great brains because they're smart enough to support Trek FM and keep us on the air because we couldn't do it without them. We've got the wonderful Norman C. Lau, Floyd Dorsey, Mike Morrison, Tim Cooper, Justin Ozer, Mark Flassa, Joe Saltzman, and a big high five and a big dish of brains to our wonderful new AP, Chris Trebuzio. Thank you so much, Chris. We really appreciate your support as well as to all of our other patrons. You can hear Chris on the last few uh, patrons roundtables, so he's eagerly wanting to talk Star Trek with us, and we're going to have him on in a couple of episodes to talk about Season 4, Part 2 for our retrospective. Well, that's all we got. I'm a little hungry. I'm going to go find some brains.
2: brains.
0: Until next time, brains. keep calm and brain on.
2: Brains. just to freak you out no i would never i would never even pretend to stop recording did Mm. you read
3: this did you read the story patrick yes good i didn't even start recording should i start
2: yes (laughs) you're such a dork okay (laughs) (laughs) that's why i love you (laughs) rage
3: rage
2: (laughs) oh no he's going hulk he's turning green no oh no
3: yeah i read the story i read it today i